This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Lee Hutchison. Hi Lee, how are you doing? Yeah, really good. This is like, I feel like I've talked about every Star Trek show ever before on different podcasts or various platforms, but I think this is the first time I've ever got to talk about Strange New Worlds. So yeah, I'm excited to, to test that muscle. Absolutely. This is our first time talking about Strange New Worlds on Primitive Culture. And I think the first time we've ever talked about a show that hasn't even been, uh, I was going to say broadcast, streamed, downloaded, whatever, released uh, yet. Though I think to keep us on the right side of uh, Paramount, CBS and so on, I'm not going to put this out, obviously, until the episode has gone out. But um, uh, yeah, this is kind of hot off the press, really. But this was an episode that um, you and I both saw in the last uh, few days, last week or so, I think. And I just thought, wow, this has got to be uh, a primitive culture episode because the kind of the reference points, the the inspiration is kind of really staring you in the face with this one. But in a way that I think works very well on the whole. Yeah, there's there's definitely some really subtle nods to, to the, a certain franchise that we're going to discuss and some that are perhaps very much on the noses as well. I couldn't believe it. I mean, the, the the most obvious one, which is, I mean, well, let's come up and say it. Anyone who, uh, j- just for the sake of any listeners who aren't up to date with Strange New Worlds, actually, which might include listeners in the UK, we're going to be talking about episode nine of season one. So if you haven't seen that episode or don't know anything about it or don't want to know anything about it or don't want to be spoiled about what happens right at the end of it, uh, don't listen to this podcast, okay? Because we're going to assume that you've seen it. Um, but yeah, yeah, the the chestburster moment was the one where I was like, wow, okay, they really went there. But I think you're right, actually, um, in various ways, the Alien franchise and actually various other kind of 80s, 90s movie franchises work their way into this episode. It's a, it's very much, I was watching it again uh, today and thinking, there's a reason I love this episode so much. It touches an awful lot of those buttons for me, for the kind of movies that I watched growing up. Yeah, I think one of these ones, I think when it's you get into sort of primitive culture, that you can talk about the kind of the surface level stuff. But when I rewatched the episode again today, it felt like there was quite a lot of the structure of some of the various alien kind of movies that mm-hmm. we're, we're going to talk about. And then perhaps there's other things when you almost think on a wider perspective about the influence of, of that franchise on Star Trek and actually maybe sort of vice versa as, as well. I think, yeah, there's definitely quite a, a few things going on. Well, we've talked about Alien, I think, on Primitive Culture at least once, possibly twice, because I think Tony and I talked about it in relation to the uh, Voyager episode Macrocosm. Uh, I guess we were thinking more about Aliens, maybe there, where, where Janeway gets her, gets her guns out in more ways than one and kind of goes all kind of macho Ripley uh, kind of action hero. And then I talked about it uh, with Dr. Chris Nunn when we were looking at films 
that inspired Star Trek First Contact, because I think, unless I'm misremembering, I'm pretty sure Alien was one of the ones that Jonathan Frakes screened to the crew when they were prepping that film. Yeah, uh, I think that was Aliens for, for sure. I mm. think a bit of Alien in terms of maybe sort of like the production design elements in terms of like H.R. Yeah. Geiger, I know that played a role almost in some of the Borg design in, in TNG, you know, that mix of like mechanical, organic, but then I think with... with there's perhaps more the aliens design about sort of the kind of the military types even sort of going and involving a a kind of queen on top of it yeah i was struck by that actually thinking about aliens and i'd never really i don't think i'd ever quite made that connection before but absolutely what they did with star trek first contact of like reinventing the borg uh you know is very much what they do in aliens with the with the xenomorphs you know reinventing them giving them this queen that kind of changes everything uh, that we know about them and their whole, you know, remarkably complex uh, breeding arrangements. But the other thing that struck me actually was I remember years ago you recorded an episode of Earl Grey talking about aliens and yes. the ways in which that influenced Next Generation, which I'd kind of forgotten all about until I was uh, taking another look at it today. And I thought, oh yeah, there are, you know, there are a few of those seeds there. And there's definitely, I think, there's a kind of trajectory from the character in Aliens whose name I can't think of. What, what was that? Vasquez. Name? Vasquez, right. Yeah, of course, Vasquez. Like like the Vasquez rocks. Um, through to Tasha Yar, through to Lan in um, Strange New Worlds. Because it, it, watching this episode, um, All Those Who Wander, it did strike me uh, that Lan has a lot of Tasha in her, I think. Um, in a weird, And weirdly, this episode has a kind of Tasha inflection because, here's the big spoiler, they kill off what appeared to be one of the main characters, very much in the way that Tasha is killed off, you know, towards the end of season one of Next Gen. And there was this whole thing then, wasn't there, of, you, you know, oh, no one's safe, you know, this show could be really bold and a couple of years later, are they going to kill off Patrick Stewart and Riker's going to be the captain or whatever? Of course, they never do that. Everyone is like, super safe uh, on that show. Nothing all that bad ever does happen to any of the main characters apart from Tasha. Um, and Strange New Worlds, weirdly, is in this situation where the majority of their cast are like canon shielded basically <laughs> so we know what happens to pike we know mbenga's going to be around we know that spock's all right uh we know that her is going to be fine we know that chapel's going to be fine so they, they have got a bit of a problem in terms of peril they, they can't go the whole like you know game of thrones or i don't know um one, one of these shows that likes to uh, the walking dead likes to kill off characters to kind of tug on the heartstrings they've only got i think they've got uh, Una, they've got Ortegas, and they've got Lan. Those are the only three left now, I think, that could potentially meet a sticky end. Even, you know, poor old Sam Kirk, we know what's going to happen to him uh, as kind of an ignominious end as it might be. Yeah, I think there's one thing I should also kind of mention as well. Data kind of took heavily inspirations that I remember. Mm. I always think I always tried with Earl Grey to try and do almost a little bit of sort of primitive culture, like tie into to, to kind of popular culture and, and the wider implications. And when they were sort of, you know, I, I'm always fascinated when you can get a list of these like directors or you know, filmmakers that go, what we want to do is we want to make, here's a list of films that we want to maybe sort of inspire the kind of work that we're going to do or the tone or the visual style. I know Christopher Nolan is a, is a huge fan of, of doing that, but Gene Roddenberry did a little bit of that before Next Generation. And, you know, there was films like Alien, Aliens, Blade Runner. And I think you can almost see that line between sort of Bishop, you know, in, in terms of this kind of very friendly, affable android and kind of a sort of military kind of style complex um, and how he goes there. So you can almost see that line from from data to, to there as well so another alien connection but 
I think, you know, almost just on that point as well, I found it when I did a bit of research as well about kind of Ridley Scott. And I think there was talk at the time, um, this is just off the top of my head, but I think they had this big wish list for First Contact, like who could we get, um, you know, alongside the Tom Hanks for for starring as Ephraim Cochran. Oh, yeah. I think there was some hope that they would get Ridley Scott, but wow. I didn't realise he was a bit of a, a fan as well. And I read an article uh, with him where he did, did an interview with, with Denny Geek in, in 2017, where he was like, um, I never realised that the awakening of science fiction universe over many many films would get so large you can't thank star wars for that you can thank god bless them star trek you've got all that it's evolved from and made another form of entertainment as well so definitely a a big star trek fan as well gosh imagine if they got him to make nemesis instead of stuart baird that would have been that (laughs) that would have been a happy timeline i think i feel like that would have he could probably have um not not to say that the film wouldn't have had its you know I don't want to get diverted into a discussion about the merits or not of Nemesis, but like that, that is amazing to know that there's someone of his calibre out there who could conceivably be interested in a Star Trek film. I think I'd rather have a Star Trek by Ridley Scott than a Star Trek by Tarantino right now, personally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he is one of the masters of the, the genre. And while I'm, and I suppose like, was it Noah Hawley that was meant to be doing sort of the Star Trek 14 movie? Now he's making the Alien TV show produced by it, Ridley right? Scott. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's well in well in development for coming to, I think, the Param- no, the Disney Plus um, streaming platform in the future. So Hulu in America. So yeah, that'll be interesting to, to see what they gain from, from Star Trek's loss. Yeah, it was a weird one. When I went to, to go and have another look at the alien movies i was thinking where can i stream these they're not on netflix there and i was sort of going through my uh streaming apps and i realized oh okay they're on disney that's <laughs> that yeah, kind of weird princess, loading up the disney plus app, app yeah exactly <laughs> for this but you know okay um anyway let's talk a little bit about this episode all those who wonder first of all i was wondering what are your thoughts on the title because this is a reference i think to tolkien isn't it and i i so far i've seen it twice I'm not identifying any <laughs> particular link between the title and the episode, but I'm curious whether that jumped out at you. This feels like a throwback to uh, some earlier podcast uh, I know, discussions yeah. as well. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, I never kind of realised the the Tolkien Tolkien connection. Um, you could maybe kind of um, maybe tie into sort of a Hura's conversation at the the start, you know, perhaps about sort of like, you know, p- for people like they come to the Enterprise, it's their absolute dream, as we've heard many a time over many different series. And, and perhaps that for, for her, she's someone that's just wandering through her career. And obviously there's a certain comment at the end of the episode that perhaps maybe grounds her in sort of viewing the Enterprise as, as that kind of career goal. So perhaps it maybe relates to, to her because it feels like it sets up in the kind of pre-title sequence to be maybe an episode about Uhura and something like that and then we kind of get something much more much more different yes that's interesting that makes a lot of sense I don't know why I hadn't thought about that I I suppose I was thinking it's got to be something to do with the a plot but you're right I think it's a it's a title for the b plot maybe um and and in a way it doesn't tip their hand I mean I'm curious I guess people watching these episodes as they go out, they get a little teaser and they get stills and stuff. So they do get some kind of idea of what's coming. One of the things I quite enjoy about getting them early is you put an episode on, you literally have no idea what you're going to get. And and that's why this one was such a shock for me and also a kind of pleasant surprise when they went into full-on alien mode. I was like, wow, okay, Star Trek's doing this. And they go quite 
uh, gruesome. I mean, like they're a, they, they find a um, severed arm. There's a guy with no leg and a pool of blood where his leg should be. I mean, like by Star Trek standards, this goes pretty dark, I'd say, and quite scary, actually. Yeah, it's definitely a, a very violent episode, and I suppose it's kind of it almost reminds you almost of like the Jem Hadar episode. Obviously, we've seen a little bit of the Gorn already in in this season, and you know it was quite a quite a bloody and, and violent encounter. And again, with this one, it's like if you're going to introduce someone and you want them to be a threat you know you have to you have to kind of draw blood and you know they certainly make some creative choices as well which highlights the the threat of the the gorn which clearly at this early stage i think if i'd gone into strange new worlds i would expect maybe their focus to be on maybe the klingons in this sort of post-war era you know i've been very surprised in in the first 10 episodes that that's not been the the case whatsoever but the gorn seem to be coming a bit more prevalent and often you get it where these star trek shows pick up maybe an alien species from some of the previous shows and then sort of runs with them like deep space nine taking the bajorans and the cardassians going with it and next generation really bringing out sort of the klingons enterprise really the vulcans and and andorians and it seems like with this it's going to be be the gorn to an extent yeah and i think it works really well actually i mean I did sort of wonder watching this, you know, how do we reconcile these Gorn with the Gorn that Kirk fought uh, in the original series? Um, <laughs> and not just on the level of like special effects and, and rubber suits and so on, but, you, you know, these these guys seem a lot scarier somehow, <laughs> a lot more formidable. Uh, and also, you know, that weird um, Gorn we saw in Enterprise. I, I don't know, like... And in Lower Decks, we got a Gorn wedding at one point, and the, the Gorn seemed to have become kind of cuddly, like, you know, usually happens with the enemy species in Star Trek. But um, this definitely took them in a very different direction, um, I would say. And they'd set it up, of course, with the previous episode, Memento Mori, which was another great... Um, I, I think these are probably my two favourites of the season, actually. Uh, these two uh, Lan slash Gorn um, episodes. They really reinvent this species i suppose as a villain in their own uh in their own mold you know they're doing something very different with it with them and particularly in this second episode by leaning so heavily on the alien franchise and basically saying okay these weird lizard people yeah you might think they were kind of silly well we're going to basically do them as the xenomorph from aliens or from the alien franchise um they found a way to yeah make them scary again i guess or make them scary for the first time possibly yeah, it, it's interesting. Like we almost kind of we obviously spoke a little bit about kind of the the para like you know the, this pre-title sequence which feels kind of quite separate. But when I started watching it again and you know taking my notes, I was kind of like immediately drawn to you know one of the my favorite things about Alien in, in particular is sort of this you know the crew feel and you know how they're sitting them watching them talking over breakfast and you know disputes etc about finances and, and everything to go along with that and you know i think some of my highlights of of the first season of, of strange new worlds has been these dinner kind of party scenes and then this one very similar to alien you know there's talk of someone's returning home the you know their next mission etc um, and it's being discussed over over breakfast very similar to, to alien as they discuss kind of going along to this this planet that's going to be next on their their mission stop so there was almost just that immediate parallel and and structure a bit more of a a family vibe on strange new worlds to (laughs) to what it was like on the nostromo well it's interesting of course in this story it's set on the planet on the crashed ship the peregrine uh i guess you know you could say maybe 
is one of the elements where it's borrowing from aliens as much as from alien i don't know but um yeah what they don't do is bring the alien into onto the enterprise they don't bring the alien into the kind of domestic uh realm in the way that i think one of the reasons i mean there are many reasons why that scene in the original alien is so shocking um with the chest burster uh one of them is the fact that they're having this quite mundane dinner and they're all like joking around and it's quite do you know what i mean it's like the mood is quite jokey and they're kind of teasing each other um and then in the midst of this sort of convivial scene uh albeit a bit you know snarky or whatever uh something so horrific and random and out of nowhere seems to happen um and it's a weird one i mean that scene it's like it's a strange mixture and i think this is true of of other moments in alien as well which as much as it's an absolute masterpiece and an amazing film there's something about that scene it's almost potentially comic it's so kind of ott and like out there and wild and um unexpected and sort of un i don't know sort of it's not that it's not set up because it is set up on a kind of plot level but it's 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 like the moment the whole film kicks up into a different gear um i don't know and then this tiny thing like scurrying across the floor it's it's tricky there's a scene in red dwarf where they kind of parody it uh, and play it for laughs i think and it's almost you know watching it it it's almost hard to get away from the kind of absurdity of it as well as this kind of horror um and i think it's interesting for star trek you know whatever like how how old is alien 40 odd years old i guess you know 40 years later to ape that so precisely because it's hard to pull that off i think um without it just seeming sort of grotesque and ott somehow yeah and i think that's the the joy of it It is just it's so violent and and aggressive isn't it and we get a little bit of of that here where it's not just popping out or being birthed it is like a you know the most violent kind of image possible and i think it's obviously everyone kind of probably all knows about it but obviously it was kind of hinted at to to the crew and the cat well the cast what was going to happen but to the full extent of it wasn't wasn't really kind of shown until it until it really happened and you know a in lot alien their, you mean yeah this was, that's this right was like yeah. the cold water in the shower in psycho or whatever yeah. this is the director Exactly. Uh, messing with his cast right yeah they just kind of just the reactions were all kind of caught very genuine probably a mixture of genuine reactions and and probably like acting exercise at the same time of just like just respond to whatever you see out in in front of you and you know <laughs> that, that probably almost explains the the heightened element of it you know if you're wanting to provoke a reaction out of a, a huge cast you can't just have something just just pop out you've really got to make a make a splash and a bang that is that's very interesting and of course star trek ups the ante because there are what three four of them i think that come out one after the, you, you've had one you think okay we've done that and then there's more of them coming out like how many of these things can you um keep inside one admittedly quite large alien i suppose i guess he had room for a, a few of them in there um but it is interesting i think although they so although it doesn't take place on the enterprise they don't bring it up to the ship i guess that helps because they can make it kind of moody and it's kind of darker on the planet and so on it doesn't have to deal with you know bright uh starfleet i mean albeit it is obviously a starfleet ship which is suspiciously similar to a constitution class they say oh yeah they're made of the same parts in other words like we can use all the same sets but whatever um but it does mean that it can be a bit run down and crashed and kind of grungy and and so on so we don't have to um deal with you know putting that cgi in the kind of full light of day but it is interesting a lot of the locations i felt kind of um echo the alien franchise and and to some extent 
I mean, maybe it's not surprising that there's, you know, lots of scenes in sickbay, given that there are sick people or whatever. But there is something about, you know, the the fact that in the original Alien, it is in sickbay again, where it all kind of goes to hell um, to begin with. You know, they bring... Um, what's, I can't think of the character's name. Anyway, they bring the guy with the face hugger stuck to his face in, and then they, they try and treat him, and there's all this sort of stuff going on there. And then it, it does the kind of scurrying around and all this freaky stuff. And we sort of get all of that here, um, where it's in the sick bay where Nurse Chapel is, you know, trying to do her thing, that it all, again, it sort of all kicks off. Um, and suddenly, the, the other thing I think um, that strikes me is it's not till about halfway through the episode that this happens. And that very much reminds me of Alien. I mean, Alien is a glacially paced film for the first, like, what, probably half of it, I guess. Uh, you know, it's 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 very absorbing. It's very engaging. But it it takes its time. It happens very slowly. It's not like a kind of whiz-bang action movie where you kind of hit the ground running. Um, And I feel like they must have deliberately done that here as well to hold off on actually kind of getting to the, the, you know, really scary thrill ride um, for quite a long time. It takes them, I think, about 25 minutes to get to that point. And even then, you know, I suppose in both stories, you've got, you know, you've got this shocking moment and then it scurries away, and then when does it come back, and so on. Um, and I think in Star Trek, you know, in 2022 or whatever, the CGI is advanced enough that they can just about uh, pull it off. I mean, certainly compared to the CGI gone in Enterprise, which was um, awkward, I feel, at the time, and certainly looking back on it now. Obviously, with Alien 40 years ago, they had to really work around the fact that this is just a guy in a rubber suit and it could potentially look kind of ridiculous. And they do that in a lot of quite brilliant ways. I mean, often you see a shadow. There's one brilliant shot where the focus is on the character in the foreground. So you're only seeing it, you know, blurred, basically out of focus. Um, All these kind of tricks to avoid showing you too clearly what it's meant to be. Uh, You you know, obviously it's it's very dark for a lot of the film. It's a very dark film generally. Um, this one, the, the Strange New Worlds episode, they, you, you know, we do see it a bit more clearly. But again, it's very fast. It's often in and out very quickly. I feel like they kind of handle that quite well. Even the parallels you can almost see with, with Alien, even kind of begin with like your kind of landing party. You know, in, in the film, obviously, we see Kane, who ends up being kind of taken over with it. And um, a couple of the other team, it's like this very inhospitable kind of planet, very grey, dreary. There's a storm in both stories, yeah. isn't it? Very windy. Yeah. All very much kind of same planet. And then almost this, instead of this engineer half donut ship, um, you kind of then have this sort of almost constitution class style starship just sort of stranded on the planet. Very mm. kind of similar parallels. And it's just, you're just like, yeah, they are really hammering home some of the the kind of um, alien sort of imagery but I think the one that really stood out for me if if you know we did like a pass on it and it's like what are the connections that we draw with with alien and it's like it's that chest buster scene it's the the noise of these creatures escaping the violence of it all you know the you know it's not just the cannon fodder being killed off as as well um but it, I took away from this would be sort of the the newt connection with with mm. aliens you know exploring this this ship you know it's it's desolate where's all the crew gone yes we know some are dead and then we start to detect life signs and the first person that we discover is this little girl um and then obviously i think we saw in the kind of previous episode as well where we had it where um and kind of he's dealing with the loss of his child and then 
A- um, Ellen Ripley in the director's cut of Aliens has lost her child, um, but we don't really see that in the f- original cut. And then that sort of explains why she gets so close to to Newt the character in this. And, you know, having just lost his daughter in the previous film, we sort of see that adoptive style kind of nature with this this kid there, which felt like a very, very strong connection to, to Aliens. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, although it was Alien that kind of struck me on the first uh, watch of this aliens is definitely in there it, with the girl character who you know she even looks quite a lot like newt i mean they both have that kind of look she looks like she's been sleeping rough do you know what i mean <laughs> they kind of dirtied her up and they're kind of they're, i don't know i feel like they're they're sort of shot in quite a similar way and both films actually have a scene where she disappears from her bed i think and ripley slash nurse chapel is going looking for her um ripley finds her under the bed i think i can't remember where nurse chapel finds her but you know they, they even play the same beat of like oh my god has she been taken by the alien no she's actually just gone off and you know done her own thing she knows and and she knows you know in both stories it's the girl who knows how to survive actually i mean in aliens i think the idea she's hiding out in like some she can crawl through all the little ducts and things, can't she? Which presumably the aliens can't fit through. And she's got this little uh, sort of grungy little home that she's built in the like maintenance shafts or whatever. Um, in the Strange New Worlds episode, the girl has has identified the coldest part of the ship that she can go to because the Gorn don't like the cold. Now, interestingly, in the alien films, it's always fire that the aliens respond negatively to. So they, they use fire to kind of drive them. Um, in Alien 3, for example, when they have to... Uh, get the alien to a particular place so that they can kill it. Uh, It's, you know, setting off fires that they're using to kind of drive it along. In the Strange New World story, it's kind of the opposite. It's the cold. But again, it's like this idea of, I suppose because it's a lizard, it's cold-blooded, that means it can't regulate its body temperature. I don't know. I guess they're going for something like that, that therefore, you know, it wants to be... You think of, like, lizards like basking in the sun, right? So it wants to be somewhere warm. Um, and so in the end, they don't burn it, they freeze it. Whereas a lot of the aliens in the Alien franchise end up getting burned. The Gorn in this one ends up getting sort of dry iced. And then in an, in another moment that felt very familiar to me, having grown up with all those movies, it's, you know, it's like the climax of Demolition Man and probably a dozen other sort of 80s, 90s uh, action movies. You know, the, the villain that gets dry iced and then smashed into a thousand pieces, Lan gets this sort of cathartic moment of smashing it literally uh into nothing kind of what happens actually to the alien in alien 3 because it um they put it in the molten lead and then they drop water on it and then it just kind of explodes so it's like it's not enough to just kill it it has to be obliterated somehow for that kind of cathartic um moment for the for the character who is this kind of survivor character i mean both lan and ripley uh lan in terms of the pre story you know in terms of her backstory this which again sort of evokes Tasha Yar and this colony that had gone to hell and everything in her case she has this incredibly traumatic childhood I mean she's in Memento Mori she says her memories have been trauma inhibited and she gets Spock to kind of unlock them with a mind meld um so this traumatized character at the beginning of Aliens Ripley is very much this traumatized character she's having nightmares she doesn't know how to you know uh sort of deal with what she's been through and I suppose in both there's this kind of with the young girl that they encounter, there's this sense of they are the person to look after that fellow survivor. Do you know what I mean? Another trauma survivor, basically. And Lan, at the end of the episode, says she's going to take a leave of absence for who knows how long to go and make sure that this girl, you know, is is kind of looked after adequately. Um, 
Ripley obviously is, you know, uh, unable to do that. Spoilers, thanks to the brutal opening of Alien 3, which kind of takes away. I mean, it, it's, uh, that is an interesting film, but just the, the way in which it takes the sort of happy ending of Aliens and then it's just like, yeah, you're not having any of that and makes it as grim and brutal and horrible as possible. Uh, it's quite a bold move. I don't think Star Trek's going to go that far, but uh, <laughs> but it's interesting. They, so they have this kind of similar background, I guess, with trauma, um, and then this similar bond with this little girl who's going through the same thing or has just been through the same thing that they have. I think there's another little parallel, I think, that kind of when I was, was thinking about it on a... Um, on a kind of larger scale is sort of like what is kind of like the star trek movies that i think alien came out post uh, motion picture and there's always that thing that people talk about with the the motion picture or did it come out the same year let me just let me get this loaded up here because i think alien was, uh, alien alien and, was i think 79. they're both 79 yeah i think yeah. they might be the same year so they kind of you get this both thing with the um the motion picture that well alien and aliens alien is the haunted house and aliens is the sort of war movie like the horror slasher and you know i was kind of thinking about like in a way the motion picture was that movie like vija in a way is this haunted house that they go into and it's trying to get themselves out of it and and free from it all and then you know wrath of khan obviously a couple of years um, between those two movies, longer for Aliens, they immediately sort of almost course correct. I don't think you can class it as a course correction for for Aliens, it, but they sort of very much more lean into the the kind of the 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 action sides of things, the sensibilities perhaps of the of the action eighties and so on. And you know, it's quite interesting kind of thinking about the the two and sort of how they almost have synced up a little bit with history too. Yeah, that is that is an interesting point you know where do these stories come from and i guess the other you know big one was like star wars two years earlier very different to either of those movies and 2001 and i think alien and the motion picture both lean quite heavily on 2001 i mean alien the it's very dark except when it isn't when it's bright and lit and you've got the computer mother who is very much a kind of hal type slightly sinister computer plus you've got you know the android ash who is really sinister in a kind of hal like way I, i think there's a lot of influence there but at the same time the aesthetic mostly is very different it's very dark and grungy because it's all gone to hell and uh they can't maintain that kind of uh bright sort of lit uh world for very long um and also there's this thing of you know it's this is not uh we're always i suppose in the alien franchise we're always you know we're on a kind of crappy mining vessel or we're with these marines or whatever we we don't really we never get to see earth i mean at the end of the fourth alien movie they're on the point of bringing the alien to earth and then we don't find out what happens so we we never get to see you know what what earth is like in that time frame or any of the you, you know we don't get to see skyscrapers and cities and all that we get a little bit of a space station i think in the start of aliens but it's always very much out there in the dark uh in deep space in some grungy nasty uh, place where there are always storms. I mean, Alien Three, that planet has seems to have perpetual storms as well. Uh, these very inhospitable environments, I guess. Um, and there is that sense, yeah, it, definitely. The kind of haunted house uh, is the is the sort of feel there. I mean, when you were talking about history, though, it struck me one thing. You know, without wanting to get all political, this is a very 
odd moment to be talking about the Alien franchise. I mean, this is a, a franchise which is all, first of all, all about sexual violence in various ways, but also repeatedly has this kind of motif of a woman with, you know, a being inside her that she wants to get rid of. Um, yeah, Prometheus probably being the another. biggest yeah. example of that. The, the most blatant. But even, I feel like even, all of them, you know, to be honest, I mean, Alien 3 does that uh, just with a slightly different inflection, you know. And they these are films that are very much about, like, sexual assault, sexual agency, um, all these kind of themes. That, I'd say, is like the big element of the Alien franchise that Star Trek is not going to borrow <laughs> to the extent that we don't get... I mean, I was thinking... You know, with Alien, if it's a horror movie, slasher movie, whatever, uh, Ripley is the final girl, and you've got that kind of totally gratuitous scene at the end where she takes most of her... She's, like, strips down to her underwear. And I was thinking, okay, well, at least Strange New Worlds is not doing this. They're not making Lan strip down to her underwear. And then I was thinking, well, you know, if this had been the 90s and it was Rick Berman and this was an Enterprise episode, that is blatantly what would have happened. (laughs) You know, at least we've moved on from there. But, I mean... uh, I suppose what I think the defence of that scene, for some people who might defend it in the original Alien, is that it kind of fits with this uh, theme that is there in the movie of sexual violence. And the alien is this very kind of male, uh, large, strong male aggressor. uh, And, you know, Ripley is this female character who is our protagonist throughout the movie and throughout the franchise. Um, And so, in a way, that scene emphasises that. It emphasises, I suppose, her femininity and her vulnerability in that situation um so i think it's interesting and and that obviously is an aspect of the story that star trek is not going to touch with a barge pole even in 2022 yeah and you know what i would almost think of like this might even be a episode that you could really get something out of but in terms of um prometheus i think one of the biggest parallels that you can draw between that and star trek is the episode the chase Mm -hmm. um the idea that you know where have we come from and sort of this this urge to go and find out like who are who created sort of you know human life throughout the the universe and you know obviously in prometheus it ends in a bit of a a disaster and, and horror but you know, you kind of get that with the the chase and that sort of journey. And, you know, even maybe a little bit more on the head as well as like the final frontier of like, you know, they are, there's an interesting kind of, you know, it depends how well you dive into it. Some of it's kind of done all right in terms of the movie, in terms of explained, but like the Greek mythology stuff with, with Prometheus and the thing of like, and the idea in Prometheus, the movie is that, they came to earth and they created mankind and for some reason these aliens want to come and destroy all mankind because they did something x i can't remember the exact amount of time years ago and you're kind of like oh i wonder what that is it's pretty much implied heavily and you know and it makes sense when you kind of know in your head is that humanity killed an engineer And that engineer was Jesus Christ. And that the reason these godlike creatures are wanting to come and destroy Earth is because they killed killed an engineer, which was Jesus. Um, And, you know, this journey to almost the center of the universe and, um, you know, this 
chip kind of you know someone behind the scenes drawing things you almost get that sort of final frontier reference about the the search for god and and mankind and you know the origin of of the world and so on but yeah i i love that about prometheus is that it just takes such a huge swing with something like that and we, we've often seen it a couple of times in star trek you know whether it's cisco being a, a godlike creature or the, the chase you know and implying that sort of humans weren't created on on earth for example um yeah, there's there's a lot there that I think Prometheus and Star Trek kind of crosses over with quite a bit. That is an interesting one. I have to say, I've not seen Prometheus since... I mean, I saw it at the cinema when it came out, and I haven't seen the second of the newer ones, Covenant, at all. Um, so I'm not as au fait with those. I mean, I did think when I first saw Prometheus, and I know lots of people have, have said in subsequent years they've grown to love it, so I think I will give it another go, but I did find all of that a bit baffling because I sort of thought this is not what I expect from an alien movie. <laughs> do you know what I mean? We do. Mm-hmm. Normally, the, the alien movie, it is quite... Uh, it, it's not sprawling. It's not huge in scope. It's actually quite a contained... They don't go to loads of different planets. That You're like you're stuck in one place for two hours, pretty much, and terrible things happen. And at the end, you run away and go to sleep. Um, so it's... I don't know, it's a strange one. But yeah, I think you're, you're right. Obviously, those are kind of big sci-fi themes. And I think it's interesting that when Ridley Scott decided to go back to Alien, having... You know, having done this quite inventive thing of handing each film over to these, um, I was going to say auteurs. I don't know if you call James Cameron an auteur, but he he does write all his own films, doesn't he? So I suppose, and yeah. it is very much a James Cameron film, you know, rather than someone else's, I suppose. Uh, so they are, in a sense, you know, giving giving them to these very uh, stylistically sort of specific directors and letting them do their thing with that franchise. I think is a bold choice um and it's interesting i suppose when you think about the star trek movies um you know do you do you give each one do you you give one to tarantino and have him do a tarantino trek in the same way as you get a um you know a cameron version of this story and you get a um jenna crazy european (laughs) sort of uh artsy weird version with the fourth alien movie or do you or do you try and go with a safe pair of hands who's going to kind of deliver something that that looks similar to the last one i don't know i mean i i love that about the alien movies although i think they're you know the second two are not as good as the first two i actually think there is quite a lot to enjoy about them i didn't watch alien 4 alien resurrection again this um week but i did watch the first three and actually even alien 3 which i had always kind of written off has quite a lot going for it um yeah it's it's if you can get past how isn't it how yeah exactly and if you can get past how just horrible it is if, to, to be honest, it's better if you haven't just watched Aliens. I think that's the problem. If you're kind of binging away through them, it's it's like such a, a brutal approach to the continuity that it's kind of, um, I don't know, <laughs> sort of sets you it, off it on kind of It depends how much you're willing to go start, along but... with it, isn't it? Mm. Where, you know, it is just so brutal and you can easily sit there going, oh my God, we went through this journey and aliens, you know, these characters survived. Yeah. <laughs> how lovely and you hope for the best. <laughs> But there's just something that appeals to you of like, it's that sickle mm. mode style thing of like, mm. Jesus Christ, can't this person catch a, catch a break and all that sort of stuff? And um, yeah, it is, yeah, it's definitely brutal. Actually, thinking about Alien 3 and you were talking about, Je- <laughs> you literally just said Jesus Christ, but you were talking about Je- this idea of Jesus in the uh, Prometheus story. Obviously, in Alien 3, there's a big uh, 
element of this sort of Christ-like sacrifice. I mean, there are actually two scenes, I hadn't realised there are two scenes where Ripley stretches her arms out in a kind of crucifixion style, uh, inviting, in the first case, inviting another character to kill her, and in the second case, killing herself. Um, and this, of course, is the mo- you know, one of the moments where, so as much as this Strange New Worlds episode leans on the original Alien, I think with the chestburster scene, you know, the ending is straight from Alien 3. I mean, Hemner uh, just dropping off that cliff is very much uh, the the scene that we have in Alien 3, the way that Ripley dies. Um, you know, in her case, she's going into a vat of molten lead or whatever. Um, in his case, he's just going over a great height. But it there is something quite um, poetic about those moments, I suppose, um, and very powerful and quite shocking, you know, in, the, in terms of the Alien franchise, to kill off your central character, uh, just like you killed off everyone else, you know. Um, and for for Star Trek to lose a main character and a very popular character, you know, who we'd only sort of just got to know. Uh, and I don't think he'll be back like, um, what's his name, in Lower Decks. <laughs> they kind of did that with and then brought him back a few episodes later and refused to explain why. I think that's, I assume, it for Hemmer. Um, yeah, I was genuinely it's, stunned It's a sad by one, that. in a way. I, I, yeah, it's shocking. It's shocking, which it's meant to be, you know, because you don't expect that to happen. You kind of knew that those red shirts were going to uh, not last very long when we're kind of introduced to them in the opening scene of the episode and then, you know, things start going wrong. That's kind of taken for granted. But losing one of the core crew is a bit of a shock, yeah. And I think what's kind of interesting about it is it makes this... It's weird talking about it now because I think there's been a couple of times that I think one of the drawbacks sometimes you get when you get access, oh, woe is us, of when you can watch these episodes early, is like, oh... I'm curious about the context behind that decision. And sometimes you get it where, whether it's on a ready room or something else where something drops, an interview will drop in Variety, Hollywood Reporter, where Alex Kurtzman or the team or the actors talk about X decision, you know, there and there on the day. And I'm kind of like, oh, why have they killed him off? Like, what was the reason behind that? Was it always going to be due to that? Was it due to, like, the actor's commitment that he could only do something? Like, I have no idea what the creative decision behind that that was i have to imagine there was a very specific reason and it's it's been in the pipeline since the start but you know obviously tashi yar was was something but i'm always reminded of the the buffy spin-off angel where they built in this character of, of doyle and their plan was always to kill him within like the first eight nine episodes to sort of just highlight the the threat that this world poses that you may you may have your name in the title but that doesn't mean you're going to be there for a full seven seasons and i think even as far back as i think it was like buffy the vampire slayer very similar show i think their plan was let's include this character in the opening credits for the first episode and then shock horror we kill him off which they didn't do but they did ultimately spoilers for early 2000s show buffy the vampire slayer they killed off like this character tara and they introduced her into the credits really late on she'd been like this special guest star for a bunch of seasons in her first episode that she's in the titles she's dead by the end of the episode so (laughs) it was such a unique way of like playing with the audience expectation and and things like that and i i find if they've I think there's maybe an element like that behind it, but I'm very disappointed that character's gone, especially the fact that it was one of the almost original characters with no ties to the kind of wider franchise or anything like that. It just feels like a shame to have to kill that character off. I, I really enjoyed him. 
Yeah, I did too. When you were talking about that that situation with Angel, it made me think of Spooks. I mean, again, spoilers here for people who aren't up to date on their, like, whatever, early 2000s TV. But, um, you know, the second episode of Spooks, they kill off one of the main characters, having having very much established her in the first episode and in that second episode as one of the core team. And then she... And this was a, a death which was not just shocking, but, like, truly horrific. And the BBC got more complaints than they'd ever had in recorded history <laughs> over this, you know, horrific decision. Um, and I think it was very much intended to, like, shock the audience and to say, look, you know, this is not a kind of cosy drama. Nasty things are going to happen to people. Don't assume that anyone is safe. And, and frankly, you know, Spooks has quite a history of, like, uh, working its way through its lead characters. And the majority of them do not leave in a nice sort of happily ever after way. <laughs> you know, they tend to go out in a pretty nasty way one way or another. Um, but it is interesting sort of Star Trek kind of moving towards that. I mean, I feel like with Discovery, there was that episode, wasn't there, where it looked like they were going to kill off Saru and they pushed it quite far. And you're sort of thinking, no, of course, they're not going to kill Saru. They're not going to kill Saru. But they kind of really dragged it out to like the last few minutes of the episode, I think. And, th- and then turned it around and like, oh, no, he's fine. And in fact, he's, you know super saru now but um there is this kind of thing you know that that is part of what people expect from tv i think these days um and in a way you might expect to see more of that in star trek but i feel it does sort of go against as much as they did it with tasha yar i don't feel they ever really did it again (laughs) um it it kind of goes against what star trek part of the Star Trek formula somehow I think I don't know um, so it's a tricky one I think it's a hard one for them to match up somehow yeah the closest they probably did was like Voyager to an extent with Caretaker of like here's you know Cavett's you know and you you meet uh, like the, the doctor you meet the commander you meet the helms officer and then psh, yeah but none oh, of them are in the credits oh, so you no, know. But I can <laughs> you're imagine paying attention then if they were in a certain world they probably would have done that. And I think maybe Michelle Yeoh in terms of like the opening pilot. Yeah, that's you know, true. Obviously that. it was, I'm sure they had obviously in their head that they were going to bring her back in this, you know, mirror universe. But like, that was very much kind of like big Hollywood star. You know, she's kind of in this special guest star, you know, I think obviously that was included in the credits as, as well. So they, they did kind of prime you to think, oh, they they really did go kill her to, to an extent. It wasn't a shock, but it felt like they were kind of playing in into something like that. I guess. Absolutely, that that is true, um, and I think that was quite effective. Except that then you have this reaction, which maybe they want, of like, oh, I don't want that character to be gone. <laughs> you know, we now we want a Prime yeah, Giorgio series. Yeah. You know, find a way of bringing it. Yeah, exactly. We don't want Culver to be dead. You know, bring him back. And of course they did, uh, which apparently they were always going to do anyway. I don't know. But, um, the amount that they had to bail that out afterwards made me yeah. kind of think like, they were like, yeah, we, we can kill him, but you know, we're, we'll, we'll bring him back. It'll be a surprise in season two. But I think the backlash with obviously the kill the gays sort of element to it really kind of either forced their hand or it, I've never seen something so panicked from Star Trek uh, behind the scenes in so long. And it's partly because this is new Star Trek and it's trying to do stuff that Star Trek hasn't traditionally done. And it is borrowing, you know, they've got their lead actor from The Walking Dead, haven't they? Sonika Martin-Green. They, they are trying to borrow from some of these other popular shows of the time. Uh, and maybe managing that kind of balance is tricky. And I mean, Star Trek's always done different kinds of stories. You, you know, First Contact is basically a haunted house movie with the Borg, isn't it? You know, it's quite similar to Alien in that respect. Um, but this is, I would say, 
you know, a bit nastier, a bit squelchier, a bit kind of more grim than Star Trek has gone before in doing these things generally. You know, they're, they're, they're pushing it. They're not pushing it like outrageously, but they're definitely pushing it a little bit. And especially for Strange New Worlds, which seems like such a sort of bright, cheery, kind of uh, poppy kind of um, show. Do you know what I mean? Um, upbeat. Uh, it, it's very much in that kind of traditional mould of kind of fun friendly star trek yeah. uh, the whiplash you get a, from watching yeah. <laughs> the previous episode you know yeah. all this like fairy tale to you know <laughs> mass murder death killing regulars and then even sort of characters you know exiting for for perhaps a brief spell etc yeah it, it's definitely a whiplash feeling and isn't that kind of what episodic tv should be that you have the comedy hijinks episode then you have the horror episode and then you know when you kind of look back at the kind of this seasons before it, it's just been you know they've certainly you can't pin one sort of genre or style with with strange new worlds and i think that is one of the things i've really enjoyed about it i mean you know for years people have been saying oh why can't star trek do episodic shows well now they are and you know it's it's great i mean some of them uh, you know i did not particularly care for the um comedy hijinks uh, <laughs> fairy tale episode but you know some people loved it but um you know they can hit and miss and even in the season of 10 there are maybe a few duds or a few that don't work out as well but there are also some i mean like i say this this one and episode four memento mori i think would be my two favorites and interesting they're both written by the same guy they're both written by a guy called davy perez who i i did look up i couldn't find out much about him except that he's born on Hall- halloween uh he's born on halloween <laughs> so obviously <laughs> as a kind of i don't know if that's given him a sort of dark creepy sensibility um but i do think that 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 thread has been a great one in season one and i hope we kind of see more of the gorn I can't. I don't know whether there's a, a canon issue. When they were saying no one's ever seen a Gorn, I can't, it's a long time since I've seen Arena. Is Kirk supposed to be the first person to see a yeah, Gorn? They've got I, this I problem so, like yeah. they have with the Romulans that you know they want to use Romulans, but no one's supposed to have seen them. So, yeah, okay, that's a tricky one then, I guess. But I feel they 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 worked around it quite well. I mean, we still haven't seen an adult Gorn, right? Because these Gorn are scurrying around on four legs, which again it seemed to me like an echo of Alien Three because you've got the alien that is is from a dog not from a human and then the alien comes out looking more like a sort of dog alien uh these felt a bit like the kind of dog aliens are they on four legs because they're crawling uh like they're baby gone so they're <laughs> like tod- you know not even toddlers they're like you know infants crawling along the floor um but at high speed and with deadly you know jaws and claws and stuff uh i mean is that the idea that at some point they would have grown up to become gone like we've seen in arena only hopefully a bit scarier i suppose it's e- probably hard if you've got like a little cgi model or something like that to kind of have it running uptight it probably just looks like a little kind of you know those little tiny dinosaurs that you get i think like at the beginning of the lost world jurassic park something like that it probably just it's oh, probably compies. easier to yeah that's it it's probably easier to have something on all four to scamper around and perhaps to be a, a threat at that point and maybe once they start of start to get kind of battle hardened and because i think they talk about they fight each other they become the alpha i suppose there's an element of like being in that kind of arena that pit where you probably almost have to to stand upright i guess uh and also in the bright light of the desert uh by the vasquez rocks it's yeah it'll be a tricky one i don't know who knows well maybe we'll see in season two it'll be interesting where they take what davy perez has next in store for lan and the gorn um because I do think that's I do think it's an interesting story, and I really like her as a character as well. I mean, we're talking about 
Hemmer being a great character. I think it's interesting, and everyone was very concerned with her that it was all going to be about because she's got this Noonien Singh surname, it's all going to be about the genetic modification and so on. And I feel that seems so far to have been a bit of a weird red herring. All we've seen is that she seems quite... She's got strong opinions on that, and it's some ancient family history, but doesn't seem to be particularly relevant to her. What is relevant to her is this kind of traumatic uh, backstory um, to the extent that we see... she. You know, even in this episode, she is late for the breakfast because she's seeing her head shrinker, as she calls it. You know, she's seeing a counsellor, um, even though she's very resistant to the idea. I think that I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting character. And insofar as it does feel a little bit like Tasha Yarmark too, I feel like they're handling it better, certainly, than they yeah. did uh, I was the first very time. <laughs> worried and concerned, you know, that connection to Can at the, the beginning. And it, for now they seem to just not touch it outside of the the name and the like that brief connection to sort of how we got from from you know being on this ship fleeing earth to to where she is now so you know i can i can buy into that i can accept that so you know as i hope they continue to dodge it because it's still something i just feel that just is unnecessary at this point she is also quite a ripley like character i would say i mean she's quite she's sort of tough and no nonsense she's very smart uh i feel like both of them they have this thing where they just kind of take charge and tell people what to do and you know ripley there's that great have you seen that um that joke about the the guy who watched alien with his wife and he, he he was saying you know i've been a professional film critic for decades and this is my wife's review of alien and it's something like you know uh smart lady tells everyone what to do they ignore her they all get killed smart lady and her cat fly away <laughs> yeah. basically just stop it because it is you know she is the only one who's ever making sense it's a great uh lockdown movie as well she's got this line if we break quarantine we could all die uh you know she's the one who is by the book who's doing the right thing who is in every uh situation is making the right call and she's always surrounded by these idiots who do really stupid things um and i don't know i Maybe that's one reason we love Ripley as a character. I mean, she is an absolute icon, isn't she? And Lana, I think, uh, with the makeup and everything, everyone thought she was going for like the Karina drummer from The Expanse um, thing. Another amazing kind of, you know, badass uh, female character from recent years. But I think with this one, you know, leaning into this kind of Ripley mould also just gives her even more... uh, heft i suppose as a character i mean if you think of her compared to you know someone like harry kim in voyager or uh, mayweather in um, enterprise you know these these kind of quite bland um characters she's got a lot going for her already even just you know 10 episodes in yeah i i think that's the thing that a lot of people tune away as see there's it's definitely been a little bit more up and down in, in the past kind of five five episodes of the the season but you know you come out as you said like you know if you had 26 episode you wouldn't feel so bothered about kind of those those ratios even deep space nine it's absolute peak had those kind of clunkers and and that's okay and especially the first season as well i think the ultimate thing that you come away from this you know whether it's the the talent the characters the stories that it's it's an exciting place to be going into into a second season and with the arrival of Kirk, I'm certainly interested to see where they go in, in season two. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's an interesting one. Obviously, in this story, we didn't get 
James Kirk. We do get Sam Kirk coming back again, though. And playing a little bit, I was thinking, you know, watching Aliens, playing a bit the Bill Paxton role of the guy who is like freaking out constantly, (laughs) you know, not as tough as you as you sort of expect him to be. And again, I think those characters are sort of there to emphasise the kind of Ripley or the Lan or whoever being cool headed, uh, not panicking, uh, being quite on top of everything. Uh, I mean, in, in, in all the Alien movies, actually, to be honest, everyone else freaks out apart from Ripley, who is like quite on it. And, and she has moments of, you know, kind of breakdown and, and uh, enormous distress and so on. But generally speaking, she is very much someone who keeps her head. She's a, you know, she would be a great Starfleet officer, wouldn't she? She would be, you'd want her leading your away team because, you know, she's kind of not going to lose it at the crucial moment like some of them do. Yeah, and and just I, I I think Ripley the fact that she's just she has gone on to be just this iconic kind of character and um yeah like I was just I can't imagine her in the Starfleet world I think she'd definitely you know rage against the machine quite a bit but yeah I think she'd make such a great great captain maybe a commander and and so on and yeah she's she's definitely iconic. That would be a good bit of dream casting for some future yes. Trek project. <laughs> There's been all this talk about like who's the villain in season three of Picard, or you know, you know who's going to be in the next uh, uh, JJ Trek movie. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver would definitely be at the top of a lot of people's lists. I think uh, you know for either of those, we just need to get right over a six movie contract to deal with Avatar. That is true. That is true. James Cameron has a lot to answer for there. Um, just thinking about uh, Cameron in particular and the way that he sort of with aliens reinvented alien uh, in, in his own, in his own mold, in his own style, in in his own image to some extent. I mean, it did strike me, like I said, there, there were other films that this episode reminded me of. Uh, you mentioned when we were talking about it before um, the thing, obviously with the kind of icy, you know the icy planet and the cold. The, the fact that cold is so important to the um, to the story, it kind of emphasises that. I got even like Jurassic Park vibes off the the Gorn. Some of the weird noises they were making. They make this mm-hmm. really freaky noise. Yeah, the um, raptor style and you've got noise. Ex- the kind of exactly. And then you've got the spitter, and they even talk about it. How the way you know the the spit, which is actually impregnating Hema, uh, is also designed to blind someone. They say, which is exactly what that freaky. Uh, I don't know what it's like proper name is, but you know, the, the dinosaur in Jurassic Park that um, eviscerates uh, Dennis Nedry is, uh, they call it the spitter, don't they? And it, and it is a really horrifying, I think it's one of the scariest dinosaurs in that movie, weirdly, even though it's quite small, just because of that um, trick that it has, I suppose. And, and the, the scary thing that it does with its like neck frills or whatever. So yeah, I definitely got some kind of, um, Jurassic Park vibes there. Predator, obviously, uh, in the visual, when we see from the Gorn's perspective, it's basically the Predator's, um, like, heat vision, isn't it? Um, so that was an interesting one, which I guess that maybe that was the first one that made me think, oh, actually, this is borrowing from more than one... Uh, well, I suppose they are. Are they the same franchise? The Pre- I know the Predator and the Aliens. Yes, like- yeah, they are the same, same franchise. Yeah, there's the crossover movies as well. Yeah, in, in Predator 2, you see an alien skull there. So, yeah, they are They are the same same universe, yeah. And I think Lance Henriksen uh, was in a... He was in was the, he one of the Predator movies? He was in Alien versus of- Predator. Right, okay. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. I think I've only seen... Maybe I've seen the first Predator. I can't remember. I was never. I don't know why I was never that 
I was never as into Predator as I was into the Alien movies, but yeah. The first Predator is good. The second one, not good. Alien versus Predator, not good. Alien versus Predator Requiem, one of the worst movies of all time. Okay. And the new Predator coming out soon, right? There's a new... Yeah, I think straight it's to coming streaming. to Hulu in America. Um, Disney, it'll probably be on Disney Plus here as well. Yeah, which will be, be interesting to see that kind of dropping on a, a streaming service. You kind of associate these movies with being being big screen experiences. So, yeah, I, I've, I think it's set back in kind of the early times or on Earth, maybe. I, I've tried to avoid the trailer. I want to be a bit surprised with this one. But I think it's about a predator hunting in sort of like the, the dawn of mankind or something. Well, Predator, obviously, Trek has done before because there was that voyager episode uh nemesis is it called which is kind of like a sort of vietnam oh, style yeah, thing they but they like very predator, much look like yeah. a, a ripoff i was gonna say like a poor man's predator they're not even that poor man's predator they're quite scary but like very much evoking that look yeah they do it quite well because they tie in with the idea that you're meant to think they're the evil villain creature but actually they're the, the goodies which was quite a nice little neat turn and so on and it kind of highlights how maybe pop culture even prejudices audience members yeah absolutely i think by probably by uh copying for want of a better word that makeup they yes they exactly it's not just that they look scary i mean you could say like the norsecans look scary in a sort of similar way but by specifically looking scary like a movie monster that lots of people have been scared by in the past they yeah they very much tap into that sort of unconscious association i suppose and maybe that's true here as well is that by tapping into you know, most people watching this episode will have seen Alien and been horrified and freaked out and scared by Alien. And by tapping into that, uh, you're you're kind of resurrecting those you know, those nightmares, basically that kind of stuff in your unconscious that is um, you're playing on it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's different. I think from sometimes when we talk about these, you know, a, a movie or a book or something that has inspired the writers, uh, and then you know you watch the episode and most people watch the episode without even being aware of that i feel like in this case they have decided to make it quite explicit you know with the chest burster in particular uh so that you can't miss it and i think that's an interesting choice because the danger obviously is that people are like yeah well it's not as good as alien or do you, do you know what i mean like if you're kind of pinning your uh <laughs> you're making it clear who you're copying your work from and you're copying from a master you better not miss <laughs> exactly yeah and there was that show i don't know if you saw um there was this show on netflix uh, a couple of years ago called another life which i quite liked no one else seemed to like it, it and it got cancelled after two seasons um but that was with katie sackoff from battlestar galactica and they did basically an alien episode where it went full-on uh everything went to hell and and (laughs) and this alien-like creature was killing everyone and and so on um and i thought that was quite a bold choice to be doing a sci-fi show and then to just say right we're literally just kind of we're veering so much into this one it's not even a genre that you're veering into it's like a specific story effectively that you're kind of riffing on um it's it's quite a bold choice and it's potentially a risky choice and i know a lot of people that show you know people who had been kind of just about going along with it they lost them at that point because they were like oh for goodness sake this is ridiculous you know uh i thought this was its own show and now it's just doing alien but i don't know you know for me it worked i think those beats work uh those moments work you know it i mean maybe you are cribbing from the best but if you're taking the right stuff it's a bit like you know uh when we did an episode looking at first contact first contact borrows lots of stuff from all those films uh you know jaws um close encounters uh, alien whatever 
but it does it very effectively and all those moments are highlights of the movie you know yeah it just depends how if you you know how you do it you know and i think with this it's still it's its own unique story it's interesting kind of characters it's you know the bit that's going to get people talking really afterwards and probably the reactions is is that ending which is its own bold and and brave choice but you know you you think of as we you mentioned earlier macrocosm it leans so heavily into to the alien imagery and it's probably one of the most popular voyager voyager episodes and you know it's if star trek after all these hundreds and uh, hundreds of episodes isn't ripping off from itself you know it's drawing inspiration from from other people and sources and literature and works of art and so on so you know it's 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 Come at it if you've got something new, new and unique to say. And you know, I think ultimately you you can can't come away from this episode and not think, oh, that was a really enjoyable hour of television. And yeah, they certainly took a big swing with it with with what they're doing. And I I can't wait to see the reactions uh, online come Thursday morning. I'm kind of curious as well. Where do you think Lan is going next? Because obviously, without uh, I have to be quite careful here not to give any spoilers for episode ten. But we do not. We don't know when she comes back from this uh, trip that she takes at the end of episode nine. And I was quite struck just thinking about Ripley and her journey throughout the Alien movies. Uh, there's this idea that they talked about in Discovery at some point of post-traumatic growth that, you know, you don't necessarily just... That, that, OK, so there's PTSD and post-traumatic, you know, problems and nightmares and all the terrible stuff. But also this idea that sometimes people... And I think it's a bit dangerous to talk about it uh, as this, like, alternative, because obviously a lot of people are traumatised and, and don't get to grow or whatever. But it does feel like with Ripley, there's that element of, you know, her... Um, she grows as a character. She grows in confidence. She, become, she becomes more iconic with every film in some ways, to the point where in the fourth one, she's half alien and she's like this, you know... Uh, I don't know what you describe. She's sort of more than human somehow. I don't know. Where, where, is, where do we think Lan is going with this, you know, these repeated oh, She'll be back counters. in the two episodes' time. It'll be similar to um, Saru, where he, he's off to this planet, he's off on his mission, then he kind of comes back and, and so on. So, yeah, I don't think she's going to be, be away long, because they've kind of removed a couple of the characters really already by the, the end of this episode, and one suspects Uhura might take a little bit while to come back, because it feels like her departure or where she's going is sort of going to be a bit more of a kind of long return, you know, I you know she's got her next assignment whereas this she is a member of the crew and is due to to come back so hopefully i don't think it'll be be too long and i'm I'm sure the second or third episode of season two will be dedicated to what she's been up to in her story and her return back to the the crew maybe she'll bring that girl back with her i mean i was thinking that would actually be quite an interesting because she's quite a young you know she's quite a young character to be the head of security or whatever as it is you know why not have her also bringing up a you know, teenage girl or whatever. I don't know. I feel like, in a way, it's a shame to to get rid of that character. That could be that oh, could they'll, add like they'll a crash whole crash on a planet. <laughs> crash on a planet, and she'll die off screen. Right. That's exactly. That's it. what happens. She'll she'll come back in season two, and she'll say, "Oh yeah, it was awful. Uh, the girl died horrifically." Uh, then we'll have some flashbacks, kind of Death of Echeb style, to when she had to perform a, a horrendous autopsy. Uh, and then she'll come back on the ship and, and reveal that she too has been infected and she has to kill herself now in some brutal, uh, miserable way after begging 
Mbenga, Pike, and half the crew to do it for her. Yeah, yeah. bring That's... on Cheery season two. <laughs> no, hopefully that is not the direction they're going with in season two of Strange New Worlds. But I mean, but that's what it's like, you know, watching Aliens and then watching Alien 3. That is what it's, <laughs> that's the kind of left turn that you get there, isn't it? Is it's like, yeah, you know, all this kind of uh, slightly schmaltzy, not schmaltzy, but this this kind of like, you know, you've got a little bit of romance, you've got this kind of family dynamic, all this kind of nice stuff that we've managed to introduce into this franchise it was just there to like be torn apart and traumatize you all over again yeah it's uh, an interesting way you know i think we all thought we've had trauma in picard we've had trauma in discovery strange new worlds will be the kind of the soothing balm to all of that nope we've got trauma trauma makes its way in there too maybe that's one reason why she is one of the sort of standout characters is that she does have she's got a more sort of ds9 backstory somehow than <laughs> a strange new worldy backstory uh in some ways although a lot you know a lot of people on strange new worlds have a secret i mean you know pike's kind of got this secret about his future una's got this secret about her identity um so th- there is you know i i feel like they hemmer i loved as a character i just i just enjoyed his sort of attitude i suppose um i, I feel like they've done quite well with balancing that but i think you could be right it, does, it did feel a little bit like they're clearing the decks Maybe because they do have new characters coming in, we probably can't talk too much about that at the present moment. But uh, but but people are aware from you know social media and so on to some extent of, of new characters coming in. And I know with Picard with season two, they very deliberately got rid of quite a lot of the main cast in order to make room for the next gen cast uh, for season three. There's the Homer Simpson thing where he becomes like the coach and he's like, it's the hardest part of any coach's uh, duty and that's the cuts. And he goes, you're cut, you're cut, you're cut, you're cut. And it felt like very much the similar like that at the end of this episode, and uh, but more so in, in Picard. I, I have a sneaky feeling we're going to see Ahura again and, and hopefully Leanne too. I'm sure we are. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Um, though maybe not, as you, as you say, maybe not in episode one of season two. I don't know. Maybe it'll take them a little while to circle back again. But that does seem to be... I mean, when you were saying, you know, what what are the reasons for this? It does feel like Star Trek these days, there's a lot more coming and going, even with these short seasons. I don't really understand it. You know, Tilly was off. And then um, in the last couple of seasons of Discovery... Um, there was one of the bridge crew, I can't even remember his name, who left and then they brought another guy on and, you know, and they had the two different actors playing the same, both playing Arium and then swapping. I don't know, it, it feels like there's some kind of whole HR <laughs> manoeuvring going on in these Trek shows that is, is, you know, a bit of a mystery to us. But, um, yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure you're right. I think they will both be back uh, and we'll see who else, you know, they're going to need a new engineer. So um, that's going to be interesting to see who that might turn out to be. Yes, and wait and see. Mm. Well, it's a pleasure, as always, chatting to you, Lee. Um, before we go, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you online and what else you've been up to and where they can hear your dulcet tones? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Star Trek VHS and at Lee Hutchison underscore. And yeah, my own podcast, Filibuster and the A24 Project. You're blended all right. <laughs> 